Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Brian Kodak. And I'm Jan Kunste. <laughs> I can see you smiling. You can't see me because we're having video issues, but this is a podcast after all. Who needs video? This is a soft launch to Joel's coming back. It's audio only <laughs> and then soon to be video. <laughs> it's nice to see you guys. Nice to hear you, Joel. I wish I could say the same. Yeah. <laughs> How have you been, Joel? I'm good. I'm a little bit of a mess. It's a mess behind me. So in some ways, you should be happy. You can't see my messy office, which doubles as storage, because I have, um, as you guys know, but our listeners don't become a father, which is the reason I've been offline for a while. Congrats. Congratulations. It it was a Swedish Father's Day last weekend, right? I know my American wife does not observe the Swedish Father's Day. So we we ignored it. What? Does she observe (laughs) any Father's Day? Well, TBD, I guess. When's American Father's Day? When's British Father's Day? Is it the same? No, I think they're all different. American... Every country, ha- they have their own? That's very confusing. How come I didn't know that? <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> fathers are important at different times in different countries. Which one do you celebrate, Jan? Uh, I think the Czech one. But I don't know when the Czech one is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's clearly an observable holiday. But Mother's Day is obviously you know, held sacred to, to all families. But yo, did did your uh, child arrive um, during your arbitration hearing or during a filing or is was there? Yeah, d- during a hectic time, uh, she came a bit early, um, but it all worked out ultimately. I took some time off and then some work, and then I'm going to take a longer chunk of time off. Not not Swedish standard paternity leave, uh, unfortunately. I would have to move back to to the north to experience that. Right. I I send some happy fun time topic foreshadowing. <laughs> That's true. You you know I feel strongly about uh, Scandi preaching from a soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joel, I think you'll be happy to note that we have two interviews today, so your uh you can your soft launch can continue. Won't put <laughs> too much pressure on you just yet. Um, the first is an interview that I conducted with Mark Tushingham, who is a barrister at 20Essex. And we discussed two simultaneous judgments that were brought that came down in the English courts, uh, one in the Supreme Court, one in the Privy Council, discussing Section 9 of the English Arbitration Act on the mandatory stay of litigation in favor of arbitration. And there was um, an in-depth analysis on what is legal pers- what are legal proceedings what def- what is a matter uh to be referred and we go into and mark was involved in the case before the privy council so we delve into uh that issue quite extensively so i'm excited for you guys to hear that sounds amazing and then i get to join a second interview yes no? <laughs> we have a welcome back we have uh, john passaro joining us uh to give us another john's corner update uh to help you 
uh, in your careers. So uh, he's going to give us a topic which will be introduced in Happy Fun Time, but it's basically how to effectively plan in order to save your own time and your own costs, I guess you could say, for your clients. But uh, just planning is the best form of success and how to do it. In arbitration or in in life in general? I guess we'll have to wait and find out, but uh, well, I think I, I mean I think that's anyone who's in disputes. I think we could just say that it's, it'll be much broader than that. But um, maybe we'll get into uh, some something that is arbitration specific and how we plan. Yay! Let's go. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Mark Dushingham, a barrister at 20 Essex. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. No, thank you for coming. I know it's a long time coming. I'd wanted you on the podcast and we've been waiting for this specific judgment. And you said, hold on, Brian, we need to wait for a judgment to come down. And that is why we're here today. What, What were these two judgments that were coming down? Well, in, in September of this year, the uh, Privy Council uh, and UK Supreme Court uh, handed down two judgments uh, on similar issues, similar legal issues. So that the first was a case called Family Mart, which was an appeal from the Cayman Islands. Uh, and, and the second case was a case called Mozambique. And that was a case uh, on appeal from the UK uh, uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, but they both gave rise to similar legal issues. Um, in, in, they were both arbitration appeals. Uh, and uh, but but I was uh, acting as counsel in the Family Mart case, uh, which gave rise to its own distinct um, legal issues. So to just briefly let the listeners know what we're going to be talking about, the appeal concerned the interpretation ac- application of Section 9 of the Arbitration Act of 1996, um, which talks about a stay uh, of an ar- of legal proceedings in favor of an arbitration, uh, whether where there is an arbitration agreement. Um, so that is the frame with which we're going to be having this discussion. And although on its face, it appears very straightforward, it does delve into kind of and the Privy Council, as, as we're going to talk about breaks it down into lots of sub issues and tests. So if you just walk us through the fact pattern, so that everyone's on the same page, I know, this is potentially to you very simple since you were involved in the matter, but just for us uh, to get on board with what happened. Sure. So I'll focus on the Family Mart case, since that's the one that I think is most uh, interesting and gives rise to some some very interesting issues. So, so this was a classic shareholder dispute in connection with a joint venture. Um, the minority shareholder alleged that its relationship with the majority shareholder had broken down and that the court should essentially order a corporate divorce either by one shareholder being ordered to buy out the other shareholder or by the court granting a winding up order, winding up the company. Mm-hmm. And the joint venture uh, was in relation to the operation of a convenience store business in China. And that business was solvent uh, and was generating substantial revenues. And the ultimate uh, holding company of the joint venture was incorporated in the Cayman Islands. And there were two shareholders in that joint venture company. Uh, the majority shareholder was a company called FMCH, and the uh, the majority shareholder was a, a Taiwanese-owned company called Ting Chuan TC. And uh, as is often the case, you have a shareholders agreement that governs the relationship between the shareholders. Uh, that was governed by the Cayman law of the Cayman Islands, but provided for all disputes to be resolved by ICC arbitration uh, seated in Beijing. Right. 
Now, in 2018, the minority shareholder presented a petition in the Cayman Courts to wind up the company on the basis that it was just inequitable to do so. And that is a statutory power that exists for shareholders. Right. But that's different from a creditor's petition to wind up a company on the basis that the company is insolvent. So this mm -hmm. is a solvent winding up. And in response to that petition, uh, my clients, King Chuan, applied to stay the petition on the grounds that the dispute should be determined in arbitration, uh, relying on the statutory provision in the Cayman Islands. And so the it was common grounds between uh, the parties that the dispute fell within the scope of the arbitration agreement, uh, applying the Fiona Trust approach to the interpretation of an agreement. Right. But in resisting a stay, the minority shareholder argued that the dispute was non-arbitrable um, and so that the arbitration agreement was inoperative and the court should therefore refuse to grant a stay. So there were essentially two issues in play in the uh, Privy Council. The first was whether the petition to wind up the company was just one matter that um, had to be determined as a, an agglomeration of one uh, indivisible thing, or should instead be disaggregated into various separate matters. And that was relevant because the legislation says uh, a court when seized of an action in respect of a matter which the parties have referred to arbitration, must grant a stay unless the arbitration agreement is inoperative. So you need to work out what are the matters. So this is basically the equivalent to the Section 9, right, in the Arbitration exactly. Act? Okay. Exactly. So that, that's that's common a common statutory word that's used in the arbitration legislation of many, many jurisdictions. Yeah, I just wanted to flag that because although we're talking about, you know, English case law right now, or um, I, it, it is applicable. And we actually see that in the in the judgment. Exactly. And so that was the first key issue, which we can we can unpack um, uh, shortly. Mm -hmm. But then the set the second key issue and the real battleground was whether any of the matters raised in the petition were arbitrable, capable of being determined by arbitration. And so that gave rise to its own set of unique uh, sub-issues, which we can also unpack. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, on the question of what is a matter, the, the Court of Appeal of the Cayman Islands had treated the winding up petition as if it was just one indivisible matter, which was entirely non-arbitrable. And, and our argument, our appeal to the Privy Council was that that approach was wrong and that you needed to look at the underlying grounds of the petition and break it down into its constituent parts. You couldn't just treat it as one uh, single matter. And the Privy Council agreed with that, but in the course of doing so had to expand on the test to determine how broadly or narrowly you define what are the matters raised by a set of legal proceedings. Right. So that that's the sort of interesting uh, legal issue that's that's um, that's raised. And you broke it down to, if I remember correctly, five matters or sub matters. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. So um, we said there were five matters. You've got to adopt a, a narrower approach. Uh, you can't just adopt a broad approach and say it's just one matter. So so the first two matters were the underlying grounds on which the winding up petition was based, namely whether one shareholder had lost trust and confidence in the other shareholder, and two, whether the relationship between the shareholders had broken down. Those were essentially the grounds on which the minority shareholder was saying, 
listen, court, you should grant an order winding up the company. Right. And then matters three through to five were essentially the questions of remedy. What's the appropriate remedy that the court or tribunal should grant? Should it grant a winding up order or should it grant some alternative relief, such as a shareholder buyout? Hmm. And it's right. So it's a two-step approach. It's identifying the matter and then saying, okay, this is a matter, quote unquote matter. And then whether that matter falls into the arbitration agreement. Yeah, so exactly. So the, the word matter is, you're, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about the word matter yeah, exactly. uh, over the next few minutes. But basically, this is a word that's used in Article 2 of the New York Convention, uh, is a, which says the court of a contracting state when seized of an action in a matter in respect to which the parties have made an agreement. So it has an international basis in the convention, mm. which is then tracked in the domestic legislation of many uh, countries. And so Lord Hodge, who um, was speaking for the Privy Council in the Family Mark case, and then also for the Supreme Court in the Mozambique case, undertook a, an extensive review of the case law from around the common law world, including England, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, elsewhere, to look at how the courts in those jurisdictions have, have defined the matter, the test for what is a matter. And so essentially there were two, two approaches. You can adopt a very granular approach and you can say, well, it is any issue raised by the proceedings which can fall within the scope of an arbitration agreement. Mm -hmm. So that's a very granular approach. And you might have hundreds of matters that, that fall within the scope of an agreement raised by a single set of legal proceedings. But then the broader approach is to look at what is referred to as a reasonably substantial issue um, that is, quote, not merely peripherally or tangentially connected to the dispute. Okay. So that seems to indicate that you can adopt a slightly broader approach. Uh, and the question for the Privy Council and the court of, and the Supreme Court was, what is the correct approach? Mm. And the the Privy Council actually was able to look at look through this case law. Actually, but very apt. I'm surprised they found such on spot on case law uh, dealing with winding up petitions and and whether a liquidator. I think was one of the cases where a liquidator claiming on behalf of a liquidated company could bring bringing claims on behalf of litigation, would that be referred to arbitration? I mean, they really got into quite similar issues in different courts. Exactly, exactly. So there was an extensive discussion of all of the different approaches and ultimately an attempt to sim synthesize the um, the case law mm. and present uh, a pre present um, the, the resolution of the appeal on the basis that there was some sort of international consensus. Now, that may have been putting it a little high. There are mm. obviously nuanced differences uh, uh, between various different jurisdictions. But, but where the, the court came out was to say a matter is a substantial issue that is legally relevant to a claim or defence and uh, which falls within the scope of an arbitration agreement. And so it's not enough just to say to get a stay of legal proceedings. I have a dispute that falls within the scope of the arbitration agreement. Right. Um, now you need to show additional things. So first you need to show that that is a substantial issue. So that means that minor issues that are just tangent, tangential uh, just don't um, uh, constitute a matter. Like an issue of fact or something like that? Well, it, it depends. It can be an issue of fact. So so um, we can look a bit in a bit more detail about that in, yeah. in a moment. But basically, 
if it is just a very minor question, for example, of potentially quantification of damages or uh, a very minor factual dispute that mm. uh, isn't really going to turn the dial, that may not be classified as a substantial dispute. Okay. But then critically, uh, it's necessary to show that those issues are legally relevant to a claim. And so that was the, the main battleground in the Mozambique case, which was to say that all of the issues that uh, the defendant wanted to send off to arbitration were not going to be legally relevant as a defense to the Republic's claims in, in that case. And so that was why uh, in that case, the court said there shouldn't be a stay. Right. Because that had to deal with supply contracts that led to bribery of public officials. And there was a discussion on whether these allegations of bribery, dishonesty would turn on this one specific issue of the validity of the contract that led to this. Is that, am I, exactly. Am I, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And so basically the, 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 uh, the, the point that was made by Lord Hodge in that case was that the supplier was saying as a defense to a claim for bribery, these contracts were all uh, genuine uh, contracts that were valid and binding and that's from which the Republic of Mozambique derived some monetary value. Mm -hmm. And what Lord Hodge said was that in order to recover damages for the tort of bribery or dishonest assistance, the Republic didn't need to show that those contracts were uh, were uh, invalid. Right. All that needed to show was that a bribe was paid. And so a defense that the contracts were valid and that gave uh, some sort of value to the Republic wouldn't be a defense to liability. It would only potentially give rise to a debate about quantification of damages. Mm. So that was the only issue that could potentially be sent off to arbitration. But That's for true. other reasons, they, they concluded that it shouldn't. Right. Uh, but in our in our case, the court accepted that all of the five matters that we had raised were all uh, fell within the, the test. So they were all matters that uh, could, in theory, be susceptible to arbitration. And the next question was whether any of those were arbitrable. Mm -hmm. So that and that's saying that it would render the arbitration agreement inoperable. For example, I think they raised well, he actually the, the Privy Council said it could be two things, right? It could be um, subject matter non-operability and remedy non-operability. What, what does that mean? Exactly. Well, maybe just before sort of delving into the uh, okay. the the categorization, uh, it, it's uh, you know you're exactly right. But just taking one step back, uh, I think it's it's helpful just to think in, uh, about what is what the doctrine of arbitrability is all about. Mm. This is not about whether something falls within the scope of the arbitration agreement. This is about what kind of disputes uh, parties are allowed to submit to arbitration in the first place, uh, and so. The doctrine says if uh, this matter is not capable of being determined in arbitration, then the arbitration agreement is inoperative to that extent. And so therefore, we won't grant a stay of proceedings in respect of an inoperable matter. Um, and so what, what it does represent is a pretty narrow exception to the doctrine or to the pro-party autonomy and a pro-arbitration approach because it's saying even if the parties have purported to agree to arbitrate over certain matters we're not going to allow them to determine that matter in arbitration right. so that's quite an exceptional uh, uh 
thing to do. And so in the course of uh, defining the, the limits of arbitrability, the court looked at uh, the, these two types uh, that you've mentioned, these two categories. Okay, so now we've we've reached it. So what are the subject matter and remedy? Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Which I actually um, haven't, to be I haven't heard that distinction laid out quite that clearly. So I'm interested to hear what they said. Yes, I mean this was the this was the first time that uh, that uh, the Privy Council or indeed any court around the world had used these express labels. Mm. I mean the underlying concepts are, are probably going to be reasonably familiar to listeners. So the the first category is subject matter non arbitrability, and so that is a case where you have a statute or a rule of public policy that says parties cannot determine this dispute in arbitration. So one can imagine, for example, in the consumer context or employment context, statutes often uh, are drafted in a way that prevents parties from agreeing to arbitrate those types of disputes. And those are quite rare. They're normally very express and explicit. Um, but the, the second type is where you've got a rule of public policy that says, because of the nature of this particular dispute, and the interests that are at play, an arbitrator, an arbitration tribunal is not capable of determining that dispute. And so that's right. quite a drastic conclusion to reach. Um, mm. uh, and so that's that's subject matter, non-arbitrability. Uh, and then <laughs> we have what the, the Privy Council described as remedial non-arbitrability. And so that that's something slightly different. And this was this was certainly a new label. Um, uh, but the, the underlying proposition was that certain remedies that a party may seek in an arbitration may be beyond the jurisdiction which the parties can confer upon a tribunal. And right. so the question here was whether a winding up order, an order winding up a company, was in that category and fell outside the scope of powers that the tribunal could 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 grant. Right. Which makes sense because clearly this is something that is typically exclusively within the jurisdiction of the domestic courts because it is so, you know, it, it, an arbitral tribunal couldn't necessarily be able to to decide that type of remedy or have the mandate or power to order it. Exactly, exactly. So courts around the Commonwealth law world, including uh, England, Hong Kong, Singapore and Australia, uh, who had considered this this issue, had all concluded that a tribunal didn't have the power to grant an order remedy winding up a company and mm. that was because it was an order in rem that would have binding effect on the world on third parties uh, and a tribunal just couldn't grant that type of remedy but uh, the Privy council noted that there was also consensus across the common law worlds that a tribunal did have the power to grant inter partes remedies that wouldn't necessarily affect third parties so for example uh, damages declarations, uh, orders requiring one shareholder to buy out another shareholder. Mm -hmm. and so there is this difference between remedial non-arbitrability in the sense of orders affecting third parties and other sorts of remedies that don't bring into play the same considerations. Gotcha. So where did the court or the Privy Council eventually fall? So they concluded, they essentially sliced and diced the petition into to two, two parts. So they said, Matters number one and two, which were the underlying grounds for the petition, those were mixed questions of fact and law. Uh, there was no statute that prevented a tribunal from determining those commercial disputes about 
loss of trust and confidence, alleged loss of trust and confidence, and whether the relationship between the shareholders had broken down. And equally, there was no reason of public policy for saying that that uh, is for for saying that those disputes are non-arbitrable. So those points were arbitrable. But all the questions of remedy were held to be non-arbitrable. And so that led to a, a question of how does the court then manage a situation where the litigation is partially arbitrable and partially non-arbitrable? And the solution which the Privy Council came to was to say, well, in the exercise of our powers of case management, even if we can't grant a mandatory stay under the arbitration legislation, we have case management powers to grant a discretionary stay of part of the proceedings that are non-arbitrable because the arbitral parts of the proceeding were a necessary precursor to the question of remedy. And so ultimately the petition was stayed to allow the arbitration to move forward, an arbitration to move forward uh, on the arbitral matters. Right. So if you're even going to talk about winding up, we first have to decide whether these the the broken the trust and confidence and the breaking down of the relationship are actually what they alleged to be. Exactly. Uh, that makes sense. What I was surprised, I would say, was the fact that the, the Privy Council and also the Supreme Court in Mozambique kind of brushed aside and saying fragmentation of cases, which one would inherently assume to be something the court should consider and splitting up stays uh, or things that should be stayed and not to be stayed. They said it wasn't really, well, expediency is something we should consider, but we're not going to, yeah, I mean, although in, in the Privy Council, they did stay all of them, but but they they said that it wasn't really a problem or a danger, I would say, that fragmentation can happen. They said exactly right. They said that obviously fragmentation can happen, and that is a consequence of parties consensually agreeing to arbitrate. And if you have an arbitration agreement that is drafted narrowly, that means that only certain matters fall within its scope, or only certain matters are arbitrable, then inevitably you're going to lead to fragmentation between certain points being determined in an arbitration and certain points being determined in court. Mm -hmm. But there are ways of dealing with that. And those are case management tools that the courts can adopt. Uh, for example, granting a stay of court proceedings whilst the arbitration takes its course, or tribunals granting a stay of their proceedings whilst the court um, proceedings are allowed to, to go on. Right. But but ultimately, it seems to me that fragmentation in a modern pro-arbitration approach to the construction and the interpretation of an arbitration agreement, it, it, it seems to me that it is unlikely to result in massive fragmentation because you're ordinarily going to conclude that a vast majority of the disputes in court will be covered by a broadly worded arbitration agreement. Right. The only issue then is whether you get into the question that arose in the Mozambique case about whether, assuming that to be the case, any of those matters are legally relevant to a claim or defence that's brought in the court proceedings. Mm. Fascinating. Well, I, I'm glad we waited, Mark, because uh, this is this is a great topic. And as I said in the beginning, you know, although this is in, this is coming up up and down the the English courts and and the common law courts, this is something that what they did is kind of brushed at any any New York Convention signatory or any country who has adopted the model law or the New York Convention into their national legislation. This type of analysis would be applicable on on this similar issue. So um, I, it, it is applicable to all of our listeners around. 
Completely agree. I mean, I think it's it that both judgments are likely to influence the future development mm. of uh, of uh, questions of stays of domestic court proceedings, given the common uh, language used in the domestic legislation. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, thank you for joining us, and thank you for clarifying this rather complex fact pattern. And uh, hope to discuss this in the future. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's happy fun time, and we have a repeat guest, John Fasaro, with us. Hi, John. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for coming back and joining us. Uh, we had such Thanks good for reception for your first two segments uh, on the podcast. So happy to have you back. Um, what is it? I was. We were trying to brand this, so I'll let you brand this. That today's topic. What do you have in store for us today? Okay, so today we're going to talk about something that sounds pretty basic, but in times of high stress, it's good to have a reminder talking about um, sacrificing a bit of time now to save more time tomorrow or for the next week. Okay. Save, take time to save time. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. So how has this come up in, in practice? Well, yeah. So I, you know, I thought about this because it came up in a coaching session a couple of weeks ago. Um, by the way, with someone who's fairly senior, you know, not talking about a first year associate here, I'm talking about someone who's been a partner for about 10 years came into the session pretty stressed because he had a huge deadline coming. And we basically just spent um, the hour of the coaching session going through everything he had to do and, and making a game plan for how he was going to get it done. And at the end of it, he just said, wow, you know, thanks. I'm feeling a lot less stressed uh, and I feel a lot more capable kind of take this forward. So I thought, look, you know, this might be something that's worth really just sharing with everyone even again if it's a bit basic mm. yeah i'm i'm excited to hear i think we often because we feel so inundated with work that the um uh, the only personality trait that we have is execute execute continue executing continue executing and that's the right. only way i'm going to get it done um and perhaps that's not the best strategy yeah i mean i think we all have this kind of panic mode that sets in of, okay, I've just got to keep moving. You know, the thing that I think about is, so um, I cycle everywhere, basically. And so if I'm running late to something, if I don't know, you know, obviously, I have a really good idea about generally where something is when I'm heading out on my bike, but maybe I don't know where the exact address is. I'll sometimes fall into the trap of, okay, I don't have time to set up the GPS. I'm just going to go. Mm. Or <laughs> it would obviously save me a little bit of time if I just took that one minute to tap the address into my GPS, you know, um, put the phone on my bike, and then I'd have a much more precise way of, of getting to that place. So uh, this that's is such a good analogy. I recognize that so much. I hadn't made that connection before. It's that bias thinking that you know, as long as I'm moving, I'm making progress. Right. Those things are advancing. That's better than doing nothing, even though there are probably better things to do before you get moving that would save some time while moving. Exactly. It's, it's really a trap. And, and not only that, you have all of this stuff hanging around in your head of because you haven't taken the time to actually make any sort of plan or you don't know exactly, you know vaguely where you're going, but you don't know how exactly you're getting there. You have all this stress hanging out that's that's making it even worse because you're working a little bit less effectively. You're taking this time every few minutes just to worry about what's going on and how you're going to get it done. Mm. So that's why I just wanted to encourage everyone. So first of all, I hope that no one is on 2 a.m. on the last day of hearing prep 
listening to arbitration station, but you know, maybe one or two of you are, but at least keep, keep this in mind for the future is that it's basically always going to be worth the investment to set aside a little bit of time when you have a seemingly insurmountable list of things in your to-do list to make a plan about how you're going to get it done. Hmm. I think there are a couple things to keep in mind. One is that a lot of us avoid doing this because we're afraid that if we actually confront head on what we have to do, we're all of a sudden going to realize that, oh, we actually won't be able to get it done. So that's the first point of reassurance is, first of all, that's rarely the case. Uh, but second of all, uh, even if you were to realize that you were in a pretty dire situation, you taking the time to actually confront that isn't going to make it any worse. And also the earlier you figure that out, the better it's going to be to say, okay, look, you know, where can I maybe shave some things off? What client can I call to maybe get a little bit of extra time? Mm. You know, who else can I can I call in from colleagues to try to get some help on things? So the sooner you start making that planning, finding those solutions, the better, right? I think I I to that point, I sometimes you're like, oh, I would probably should delegate that. And then you wait. And then it becomes too late to delegate. And then it just becomes your problem anyway. So uh, to your point, maybe you should take a step back saying, could I get help on this in in good time? Because that's really the only time you can ask for help is giving someone enough notice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. The delegation is that opens up an entire an entirely different can of worms, of right? Course, but, of course. <laughs> but it's also yeah. scary, though. Like, I feel like a lot of the stress comes precisely from the fact that there are other people involved. There are many moving parts that, I've been thinking about this contrasted with when I wrote a PhD and whenever I had, you know, the time to sit down and, and do this kind of task manager long list, what are the things I need to do? Almost all of them came down to me and my abilities and bandwidth. But in most other legal settings, especially when you're working from a firm, almost every item on the list involves moving parts that are beyond your control. They come from a partner or from a client or mm. from a junior. And I think there's some sort of almost as, as a reflex you're reluctant to do that you you, you want to do the things that you can do within your control first before you start bothering other people with things right. that are on your list if that makes sense absolutely but i think that's another really important reason to as soon as possible once you really find that a deadline is pressing upon you to take that time to make a little bit of a plan because you don't want to realize too late in the game oh man, I should have contacted X person a while ago to give them however much time they need to add whatever piece they need to add. You know, because it's not always just chasing someone to uh, do you some sort of favor. It's it's giving people proper notice and giving the people respect and giving the people the time to make the contribution that they, that they have to make. And the sooner that you can give the people that notice, the better. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to realize too late in the game that you could have done it sooner. Yeah. What about, did you get into writing at all? Or was it just time management? Like it had, what, like specific tasks, like writing, for example, I'm, I'm just bringing this up because I have been, bur I've burned to myself and, <laughs> and failing to prepare is preparing to fail as John Wooden says. Um, but, you know, taking the time before you draft a submission to go maybe create a table paragraph by paragraph on how you want to respond to each thing, that admittedly sounds like a waste of time because you'll end up having to respond to paragraphs in the written submission itself. So you'll just skip that and just start writing um, when in actuality doing some prep work and taking the time to invest in that prep process can 
clear your head and and create a general outline of what you need to do and maybe create arguments you hadn't thought of when you're just drafting full text. Um, is that something you've come across, these types of tools or prep things? Yeah, look, I, I think d- different things are going to work for different people, right? So this is all about people finding whatever works for them. I think what's important to keep in mind here is that we're not talking about taking a day out of your week to come up with some sort of detailed flow chart about what you're going to do over the next month. This is really about taking half an hour, which can feel like a lot when you have all these pressing deadlines, but it's going to save you more time in the long run, taking half an hour to just sketch out a brief plan and say, okay, look, this is the stuff I have to do. Um, you know, maybe as Joel pointed out, you know, here are the people that are also depending on this, you know, here's who else is in the, is in the flow chart. And then figuring out, okay, what's what does it make most sense for me to do and what order? And just taking that half an hour can be, again, can be a huge help, not only because it's going to make you approach things in a more logical order, it's going to make you work more efficiently, but also because it's likely going to be a huge stress reducer, and that's going to make you work more efficiently as well. Mm-hmm. I um yeah, I think it's it's effect it's it's like meditating before you start your day, right? It's it seems like I don't have time to do it, but it's actually going to give you uh, a lot more stress relief in the long run. Um, yeah, I, I, I Joel, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to ask if you think this is a particular problem for lawyers more so than others, or if it's a, a human thing. Because I, I feel like we're all with the, the type A bias that forces us into a certain mold. I feel like many of us are just primed to, you know, do the work rather than talk about the work, do the work rather than plan the work, just put your head down and get it done rather than complain or consult or strategize. I think there are things that make this more relevant to lawyers than other people. I, you know, I don't think lawyers are, are totally unique in this, but I think that there are some structural things like you said, lawyers often working on group things together. So that's why it's really important to be able to plan ahead because there are likely going to be kinks at some point. So uh, you need to be able to plan for someone not getting you something in time or maybe you taking a little bit more time than you expected to get something done. I think also the fact that there are often unexpected things that come up. Clients contact you with an emergency, something unexpected happens, um, and you need to figure out a contingency plan to deal with that. And also just the intense pressure that comes along with the high stakes that are inherent with these big arbitrations that everybody's working on. Mm. I think we don't take, the, I, I mean, as, as lawyers, I, I think we don't take the time not only before, but also after. And, you know, we've had, we discussed with you about reviews and assessments and no one takes the time because they think they're too busy. Um, when in actuality, if you take that time even after a filing or a deadline to sit down with your team and assess what happened, that can help your next task as well. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's exclusive to to before something happens, but also even after. It's just about taking a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Just this feeling that we have that there is always so much on our plate, which is absolutely true. But uh, feeling that there that doesn't leave any time to do this kind of taking a step back, mm. which again can make your lives so much easier if you just take a tiny bit of time to take that step back. Um, it can pay huge dividends. Yeah. What is your sense of the the awareness of this and the resources available in the in the wider community since you have clients working for law firms? Is this something that you feel that employers and maybe us we're at the community more widely we're 
getting better at because I would imagine this was a much bigger issue just you know, 20 years ago. I, I, I don't get the sense there's been a, a huge amount of positive change. Uh, and, and, you know, that's precisely why I wanted to bring this up as well is because, like I said, this is something that comes up over and over again in coaching sessions. And so even if this is something that maybe, again, for those of you who are having a calm week right now are thinking, okay, look, it's pretty obvious. Sure, I'll take half an hour when I'm feeling stressed to make a plan. For as many of those people out there, there's going to be just as many who are experiencing a major crunch time right now. And they're saying, look, that's all well and good. But in this particular case, I really just don't have the time. If I sacrifice that half an hour, then everything is going to fall to pieces. Mm. Um, and so yeah, generating that awareness about the importance of doing this, but also the how possible it is to do this, how within reach it really is and how much of a difference it can make, I think is really important. Do you think that people in seniors positions should lead by example and kind of create like a meeting about this, for example? I think that, I mean, you know, creating a meeting about it. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think that people can can lead by example by modeling good behavior mm. and you know, maybe panicking, panicking a little bit less. I think that there are definitely people who do that. I'm not saying this is something that's, that's non-existent. Um, but I do think that this is something that people need to model a bit more. And I think that this sort of constant rush, 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 you know, we need to just push as fast as possible and as hard as possible to get everything out. I think it's important to remind people that there is another way and that one way to get thing done, things done. Again, it doesn't have to involve being totally Zen all the time, but mm -hmm. again, just taking out a half an hour chunk when you're having a really busy week can make a huge difference. I think what Joel and I are cornering you on is the Swedish cultural tradition of having a meeting about a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but right. frankly, I mean, my sense is that many of the things that prevent you from actually feeling that you're being productive is too many meetings. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe, maybe adding more meetings uh, is not the best way to do it. Maybe it, it actually works best if it is, as John is hinting, sort of a, a solitary exercise because it will look different for different people. And right. if you do it in the morning or in the night or whatever, it's going to be different. Exactly. I don't, I mean, I, I am definitely not a proponent of meetings for meetings' sake. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, this is maybe just something that you can keep in your back pocket, not only for yourself, but for when you're standing at the coffee machine next to a colleague who's totally flipping out and maybe reminding them that, look, you know, maybe it would be, you know, hey, should we sit down for 20 minutes right now? And you can talk me through how you think the best way is to get it done. That sounds like a really good use of maybe both of your time. Mm. That's a good point. I feel like otherwise, the the instinct in that scenario is to tell the, the colleague in question that I'm also swamped. And that <laughs> sometimes actually helps just to know that we're all screwed and we're all <laughs> overworked. And, you know, I'm not alone in this. And that gives a little bit of relief, but maybe not the, the right kind of productive relief. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, yeah, the, the the conversation in that case could be, you know, look, we're both feeling really stressed. Maybe it would be really helpful if we talk to each other about how we think we're going to get this done. I guess the fear in that case is always that maybe then you'll realize that you are actually screwed and your colleague is not at all. <laughs> <laughs> at least you help someone in the process, if not yourself. Yeah, no, but, no, but again, I, I do want to stress that put that fear out of your head that your to-do list, as insurmountable as it feels, is unlikely to be actually insurmountable. And you sitting down to think about it in a structured way for 30 minutes is probably going to make a huge difference. And, you know, the sort of caveat to that, if your to-do list actually is insurmountable, then it's definitely better that you realize that now rather than tomorrow or the next day or next week. 
very sage advice. Amen. As usual, John, thank you for joining us and thank you for uh, for this segment and hope to have you back soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hope you'll be back soon as well. Take care.